is Craig here? He is very much so here, yes. And he's going to want to hear this. In case you were missing our talk about Forever Chemicals, I got you covered. This starter episode, titled Toxic Forever Chemicals Found in Toilet Paper Around the World, is going to satisfy that itch that you got. I hope it's not on your butt. I hope not either, because that could be bad sign. You should get that checked out. (laughs) (laughs) This article about the dreaded forever chemicals that we're constantly talking to you about goes on. It's not just a a title, as we would like to believe that mostly exists in news articles. Just titles. Wouldn't that be nice? You wouldn't have to read so much. But I'll read it for you. Don't worry. All toilet paper. Some of it. It's a long article, so. I'll read you some of it. All toilet paper from across the globe checked for toxic PFAS, forever chemicals. I didn't know that's what it was. PFAS. Yeah. Now we know. We've all learned something together. I didn't know that it was. Have I never said that? Have I always just said PFAS? (laughs) You could have said it. Okay. And I just didn't listen. Forever chemicals. So it's literally PFAS, PFAS. Forever chemicals contain the compounds and the waste flushed down toilets and sent to sewage treatment plants probably creates a significant source of water pollution, new research has found. Once in the wastewater plant, the chemicals can be packed into sewage sludge that is eventually spread on cropland as fertilizer or split into waterways. It is everywhere. Toilet paper should be considered as a potentially major source of PFAS entering wastewater treatment systems, the study's author wrote. We don't know who that is. Tom Perkins? Maybe? No, he wrote the article. PFAS are a class of about 14,000 chemicals typically used to make thousands of consumer products resist water, stains, and heat. They are called forever chemicals because they do not naturally break down and they are linked to cancer, fetal complications, liver diseases, kidney diseases, autoimmune disorders, and other serious health issues. Just in case you needed a reminder, though you probably didn't, we talk about them so much. It seems weird that you would need toilet paper to be water repellent. I was just going to say, it makes complete sense that we would want these in our toilet paper, no? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're they're supposed to break down and just immediately disintegrate in the pipes. Yeah, but no, we want that not only touching our butts, we also want that to go into our water streams. Into our crops, and then back to our butts. Exactly, that's what we're all pretty much thinking at this point. The study checked 21 major toilet paper brands in North America... Western Europe, Africa, Central America, and South America, but it did not name the brands. The peer-reviewed University of Florida report did not consider the health implications of people wiping with contaminated toilet paper. PFAS can be dermally absorbed, but no research on how it may enter the body during the wiping process exists. How can that not exist? I mean, if it's touching your butt, it's going into your system, obviously. And I'm not a scientist. However, it's an opening. (laughs) However, that exposure is definitely worth investigating, said David Andrews. I'm surprised here. Senior scientist with the Environmental Working Group, a public health nonprofit that tracks PFAS pollution. I'm surprised here at this. They didn't look into the implications of what it would mean for the human body wiping your butt with that. But they looked into what the toilet paper was doing to the planet. Seems weird. I think maybe nobody wanted to study that. Yeah, I think so as well, but it just makes sense because you can get sick and get infections that way. And that's also the way that temperatures are taken. They do, they can put drugs in your system that way as well. Mm -hmm. Up the butt. I don't know the technical term for that. 
rectally. <laughs> or suppository. Suppository. Yes, I did know it. So you would assume it's doing something with toilet paper. Anyhow, I digress. Brands that used recycled paper had just as much PFOS as those that did not. And it may be that there is no avoiding PFOS in toilet paper. You just can't make it without it, said Jake Thompson, the study's lead author at the University of Florida grad student. He says in quotes, I'm not rushing to change my toilet paper, and I'm not saying that people should stop using or reduce the amount of toilet paper they use, he added. The issue is that we're identifying another source of PFOS, and it highlights that the chemicals are ubiquitous. That's an end quote. The PFAS levels detected are low enough to suggest the chemicals are used in the manufacturing process to prevent paper pulp from sticking to the machinery. Oh, that makes sense. PFAS are often used as lubricants in the manufacturing process, and some of the chemicals are commonly left on or in consumer goods. Uh, blah, blah, blah. They go on to say PFAS are not added to the toilet paper, and evidence seems to suggest otherwise, though it may be true that PFAS are not intentionally added. Companies might not be aware that it's used because it might come from the manufacturer of the instruments they're using. Anyhow, that's pretty much the article. I pretty much got through the whole thing. I'm just leaving out a few sentences. Worries me a lot that a scientist literally knows the problem that PFOS has on the planet. And he's like, yeah, but it's not going to change how much I use or what I use. Yeah, I'm just going to use more, <laughs> to be honest with you. I believe is what he was getting at. Maybe they're on to something in Asia with the bidets. The squat toilets? Europe's the bidets. Asia's got the squat toilets. Asia uses bidets as well, I think. Okay. Um, If you've ever seen 90 Day Fiance, there is one where his whole family buttholes are so clean. <laughs> we don't know the implications of bidets and their making process. There's probably PFOS involved in that. There's probably PFOS in them. If I've learned anything from Journey to the Fringe, and this might be the return of the Fringe, that PFOS are in everything. That's what we're learning. Whatever. I, I think the point that the scientists are making are don't walk around with dirty butts. Just do something. Do something indeed. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. And And with that, I think we've all learned a little something and we can get on with this episode. Yeah, let's do the episode. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, now taking a short hiatus from recording episodes. But from your viewpoint as the listener, this will only be about a six day long break. We are your sabbatically set hosts, Taylor and Chelsea. And here today, we're talking about a fringe topic that I love. And Chelsea, you're going to love this too. I'm anticipating this. It is the 1897 airship wave. Okay. That sounds enjoyable. I'm ready already. I didn't even have to prepare. We're not going to critically analyze it. What we're going to do is, for the most part, follow newspaper articles of sightings of rogue airships flying across the U.S. in the years 1896 to 1897. Oh, I was just going to say, um, that's not what's currently happening with us shooting down, the U.S. shooting down. I mean, they could be. They disintegrated on impact. We haven't talked about that because that was way too not a fringe topic. I know. <laughs> I had to only randomly bring it up, though. <laughs> but I'm excited to hear about this. I've heard a lot about it. Yeah, and this is a different time in the world of aviation. The Wright brothers hadn't actually like flown the first official flight 
hasn't happened yet. That doesn't happen until 1903. Oh, okay, so like very different. Yeah, this is a completely different time. Except nothing should be in the sky. Well, we'll get to that a bit. According to British aviation historian Charles Gibbs Smith, and this is a direct quote from him, Speaking as an aeronautical historian who specializes in the period before 1910, one can say with certainty that the only airborne vehicles carrying passengers which could possibly have been seen anywhere in North America were free-flying spherical balloons. So hot air balloons do exist, but that's literally it. I mean, they're not hard to pick out. Yeah, and you can't control them that well. They gotta float in the wind currents. And it is highly unlikely for these to be mistaken for anything else. No form of dirigible or heavier-than-air flying machines were flying or indeed could fly at this time. However, just because they weren't in the sky doesn't mean that there weren't crazes about airships in general. Airships were in the public eye just prior to this wave. In 1895, a Swedish explorer by the name of Solomon August Andre made headlines describing plans for an Arctic balloon trip, which he unsuccessfully attempts in 1896, and two months before this outbreak, dies trying to do it. He was trying to fly a balloon filled with hydrogen to the North Pole, and he he dies. Jesus. That. Yeah. Terrible That's plan. That's respect, yeah. <laughs> and on May 6, 1896, Samuel Pierpont Langley, described by Gibbs Smith as the first major aeronautical figure in the United States, made headlines after successfully testing in flight his large airplane model number five. About one month before the outbreak, the New York Times carried an article with front page headlines describing the crash of experimental airship Albatross, which inventor and navigator William Paul narrowly escaped serious injury after his craft, quote, dropped rapidly, beat into a clump of trees and fell, end quote. The article concludes that the inventor says the experiment was unsuccessful because of the core northeast wind and that but for this he would have made a flight to astonish the world and before this all takes place as well on november 1st 1896 the detroit free press reported that in the near future a new york inventor would construct and fly an aerial torpedo boat 16 days later the sacramento california bee printed a telegram from a new york man claiming he and two friends would board an airship of his invention and fly to california which he promised to reach within two days okay so that is on on November 17th. And then the first sightings actually start on November 17th. Really? So with all of that in mind, here's what happens. Okay. The Sacramento Bee and the San Francisco Call reported first sightings on November 18th, 1896. The witnesses reported a light moving slowly over Sacramento on the evening of November 17th at an estimated 1,000 feet elevation. Some witnesses said that they could see a dark shape behind the light. A witness named R.L. Lowry reported that he heard a voice from the craft issuing commands to increase elevation in order to avoid hitting a church steeple. <laughs> Lowry added, quote, in what was no doubt meant as a wink to the reader, that end quote, that he believed the apparent captain to be referring to the tower of a local brewery, as there were no churches nearby. Lowry further described the craft as being powered by two men exerting themselves on bicycle pedals. Above the pedaling men seemed to be passenger compartments, which lay under the main body of the dirigible. A light was mounted on the front end of the airship, and some witnesses reported the sound of singing as the craft passed overhead <laughs> were they that close to the ground that they could hear them well it says 1000 feet but apparently they could hear them but i also don't know how you would really have any way of knowing that like literally you never see anything in the sky really except for yeah. maybe like kites and hot yeah, air like balloons. it's ob it's quite obvious there's something in the sky okay <laughs> So that happens. And then on November 25th in Stockton, the Stockton Evening Mail printed this article seen on a country road by Colonel H.G. Shaw and a companion. This is the article. We were jogging along quietly when the horse stopped suddenly and gave a snort of terror. 
Looking up, we beheld three strange beings. They resembled humans in many respects, but still they were not like anything I had ever seen. They were nearly or quite seven feet high and very slender. These beings wore no clothing, Shaw reported, and said they were covered with a natural growth hard to describe. It was not hair, neither was it like feathers, but it was as soft as silk to the touch. Quote, they seemed to take great interest in ourselves, the horse and buggy, and scrutinized everything very carefully. Their faces and heads were without hair, the ears were very small, and the nose had the appearance of polished ivory. Their mouths were tiny while the eyes were large and lustrous. They were possessed of a strange and indescribable beauty. Shaw then asked the aliens where they were from, and they seemed to not understand me, but began, well, warbling, expresses it better than talking. And then, placing my hand under his elbow, I pressed gently upward and lo and behold I lifted him from the ground with scarcely an effort. I should judge that the specific gravity of the creature was less than an ounce. The creature was probably terrified. Yeah, this dude is (laughs) built. Each alien carried a shoulder bag attached to a nozzle. Every little while, one or the other would place the nozzle on his mouth, at which time I heard a sound of escaping gas. One of them, at a signal from one who appeared to be the leader, attempted to lift me, probably with the intentions of carrying (laughs) me away. Although I made not the slightest resistance, he could not move me. And finally, the three of them tried it without the slightest success. They might have just been trying it because he did it to them. And then whipping out egg-shaped lights, some sort of luminous minerals, that the beings revealed a startling immense airship hovering nearby. Quote, it was 150 feet in length at least, though probably not over 20 feet in diameter, pointed at both ends, and outside of a large rudder, there was no visible machinery. Off to the ship they headed, quote, not as you or I walk, but with a swaying motion, their feet only touching the ground at intervals of about 15 feet, end quote. And then springing 20 feet up to the ship, the aliens whizzed off, quote, It went through the air very rapidly and expanded and contracted with a muscular motion and was soon out of sight. I have a theory, which of course is only a theory, that those we beheld were inhabitants of Mars who have been sent to the Earth for the purposes of securing one of its inhabitants. And that's the end of that sighting. That's a cool sighting. Was that, that was in a newspaper. Yeah, that was in the Stockton Evening Mail. Oh, that's cool. I like that one. And then while that's going on, that is posted on November 25th. On November 21st in Sacramento, Sacramento. These lights are seen again, and in fact, they're seen over Folsom, San Francisco, Oakland, Modesta, Manteca, Sebastopol, and several other cities later that same evening, and it was reportedly viewed by hundreds of witnesses. And then the San Francisco Call reported sometime before November 24th, 1896, I couldn't find the specific date, a man reported that while searching in the woods for deer, he came across six men working on an almost completed airship, and these men then swore him to secrecy now that he had heard about these sightings he wanted to come forward with what he had seen. And then, while all this is going on, this lawyer by the name of, oh shoot, I did I put his name here? That's okay. The article is still open. So I can, in fact, look it up. George D. Collins. Here with bated breath thinking it was Andrew Baziago. <laughs> I know. Andrew fucking Baziago, kid time travel lawyer. <laughs> So George D. Collins, he's a lawyer in San Francisco. He comes forward and he says he represents a man that's causing these sightings. And this is printed everywhere. This is the Sioux City Journal, November 23rd, 1896. And this is the exact press release that he gave. It is perfectly true that there is at last a successful airship in existence and that California will have the honor of bringing it before the world. I have known of the affair for some time and am acting as attorney for the inventor. He is a very wealthy man who has been studying the subject of flying machines for 15 years and who came here seven years ago from the 
state of Maine in order to be able to perfect his ideas away from the eyes of other inventors. During the last five years, he has spent at least $100,000 on his work, and he has not yet secured his patents, but his application is now in Washington, and I cannot say much about the machine he has perfected, because he is my client, and besides, he fears that the application will be stolen from the patent office as people come to know that his invention is practicable. I saw the machine last week at the inventor's invitation. It is made of metal, is about 150 feet long, and is built to carry 15 persons. There was no motive power as far as I could see, certainly no steam. It is built on the airplane system and has two canvas wings, 18 feet wide, and a rudder shaped like a bird's tail. The inventor climbed into the machine, and after he had been moving about the mechanisms a moment, I saw the thing begin to ascend from the earth very gently. The wings flapped slowly as it rose, and then a little faster as it began to move against the wind. The reports from Sacramento the other night were true. It was my client's airship that the people saw. It started from Oroville in Butte County, flew 60 miles in a straight line directly over Sacramento. After running up and down once or twice over the capital, my friend came right on a distance of another 50 miles and landed at a spot on the Oakland side of the bay, where the machine now lies, guarded by three men. The inventor found during his trial trip that his ship had a wave-like motion that made him seasick. It is this defect that he is now remedying. And then the following comes out the next day, and this is from the Bismarck Daily Tribune, November 24th, 1896. The inventor of the mysterious ship, which has been puzzling local scientists and others for the past week, is believed to be one Dr. E.H. Benjamin, an alleged dentist who occupied rooms in the Ellis Street Lodging House for the past two years. But so far, he has successfully evaded all attempts to discover his identity. His attorney, Collins, when seen impressed to tell more about the machine and his inventor, said, quote, This morning, the inventor came to my office in the Crocker Building and told me that he tested the merits of the ship last night's storm with great success, and he hovered over Seal Rock for fully 10 minutes and played his searchlights on the seals themselves. A dispatch was received from Sacramento to the effect that hundreds of people there had again seen the mysterious meteor in the heavens, but as yet, no one has been able to see the object sufficiently well to state definitely what it is. Interesting. But then, while this is all going on, another article comes out. This is on November 29th, 1896, and this is from the Oregonian. I have to assume, just because of how news would spread at the time, that it would be, like, common throughout the U.S., these articles coming up. These are just ones I was able to find. So it's not just it's only showing up in Oregon, and then it's only showing up in Bismarck. Yeah. These would be all printed everywhere in my mind, but cannot confirm that because I do not have access to what I kinda newspaper assume. records. So yeah. November 29th, 1896, in the Sunday Oregonian, they printed this article. Wide attention has been drawn to the newspaper story sent out from San Francisco of a mysterious airship invented by a man from Maine, built in secret and launched from a retired spot south of San Francisco, once it made long voyages back and forth over the length of the state. Told with a clumsy imitation of all Swift's wealth of detail, including an interview with the counsel of the inventor, a lawyer who afterward divided all knowledge of the either inventor or airship, but it was swallowed gluttonously by the people of California who blocked the streets nightly to imagine that they saw the oblong white body enveloped in dim light as it traveled to and fro in the air. And apparently Californians are still gaping up into the empty night, though the falsity of the story has been proved. Of course, no person of intelligence ever believed it. That's the last anybody ever heard from Collins, the attorney, outside of in 1905 when he has to stand trial for bigamy. Jesus. 
that was a whole other okay. <laughs> this thing I started going down at that point, which was really that, weird. Do we have any other insight on? Well, there is one other insight here. In 1886, an inventor by the name of Moses Cole patented a new and improved aerial vessel, and it consists of two semi-spheroidal balloons. And according to Scientific America at the time, quote, between which are situated the cabins of the passengers and crews, those being fitted with windows surrounded by a circular balcony. This is at least kind of one explanation of where these guys got the idea for the balloon and the patent thing is from a previous patent that had been filed with the patent office. But yeah, the inventor never shows up. And this is really the end of the first wave of the airships. That's weird. Okay. But it's not the end of airships in general. They come back around the start of February 1897. The Omaha Bee reports an airship sighting over Hastings, Nebraska that happened the previous day. And then an article in the Albion Weekly News reported that two witnesses saw an airship crash just inches from where they were standing. And the airship suddenly disappeared with a man standing where the vessel had been. The airship pilot showed the men a small device that supposedly enabled him to shrink the airship small enough to store in the vessel in his pocket. An arrival newspaper, the Wilsonville Review, View, playfully claimed that its own editor was an additional witness to the incident and that they heard the pilot was saying waver et rof eberkibus. The phrase he allegedly heard is just backwards for subscribe for the review. What? But I don't have an actual date on that one. I just kind of think it fit in here. So February, it kind of, we have another pop-up. April, things really start going. This comes from April 3rd, 1897. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported a sighting. That mysterious airship, still continues to show itself in the West. It was first seen in California and it has now reached Kansas. With rare modesty, it only makes its appearances at night and then but little of it is visible except the lights that are on board of it. The fact that the scores of people who have seen it at different times all agree in the description which they furnish is certainly something in favor of the truth of the story. As the inventor appears to be working his way east, we, in this latitude, may soon have the opportunity of adding that to the number of observers. From there, apparently this object then goes south and is next seen above Guthrie, Oklahoma on April 6th. The Dallas Morning News published an article then on April 8th titled Strange Object Seen and There Shall Be Signs Seen in the Heavens describing this encounter. Soon a bright light was seen at the front of the object, which seemed to be thrown out in different directions. Mr. Trumbull called a number of people who watched the strange object for a long time and are confident it is the mysterious airship seen at so many places during the past few weeks. Its outlines were indistinct, but a light was thrown out from the front. And at times there were flashes of light along the sides. It moved swiftly backwards and forwards, sank almost to the ground just north of the city, and then rose straight into the air at great speeds and disappeared into the dark of the night. Then, on April 10th, 1897, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch published a story reporting that one W.H. Hopkins encountered a grounded airship about 20 feet in length and 8 feet in diameter near the outskirts of Springfield, Missouri. The vehicle was apparently propelled by three large propellers and crewed by a beautiful nude woman and a bearded man who was also nude. Oh no. Hopkins attempted with some difficulty to communicate with the crew in order to ascertain their origins. Eventually, they understood what Hopkins was asking of them, and they both pointed to the sky and uttered something that sounded like the word Mars. Hmm. Then, April 14, 1897, the Philadelphia Inquirer provided additional information about the inventor and possibly the airships being 
openly displayed. Not much comes from this. And now comes the story that the director of the Trans-Mississippi Exposition to be held at Omaha have received a communication from a man who declares that he has invented an airship and that he will disclose his identity and come to the front if the director will guarantee him 870,000 square feet of space. He declares that the ship will carry 20 people to a height from 10 to 20,000 feet. Nothing comes of that. Why is this happening so much? I don't know. Then, on April 15th, the Dallas Morning News described a reappearance of the mysterious airship over Denton County, Texas, by at least two credible persons whose reputations for truthfulness cannot be assailed. This article contained more details than nearly any published previously. This is a bit of a long one, so let's get listening here. I at first thought it was a meteor, but upon closer examination discovered the unknown object to be almost stationary and focusing my binoculars on it, discovered that it was moving slowly in the southeasterly direction. At this slow rate of speed, the ship continued its course for a few minutes, and then with almost a jump, started off at a terrific rate and disappeared in the southeast, remaining in the range of my vision about 20 minutes. When I first ascertained the character of this object, it floated about a half mile above the earth and seemed to be about 50 feet long, of a cigar shape, with two great mugs thrust from each side, a broad tail for steering, sail behind, and a long break or blade resembling a cutwater on a ship in front. At the point where the searchlight threw its rays far into the night ahead, beside which the luminosity of the moon paled, a row of windows along the side gave out smaller lights, the source of which had been stored electricity, as there was no smoke. As well, I could see and I could I could see very plainly coming from the ship, nor was there even a sign of smokestacks. Two days later, on April 17th, the Dallas Morning News reported another detailed account of the mysterious ship, this time in Paris, Texas, about 100 miles away from Denton County. And according to a Mr. J.A. Black, the night watchman at the Paris Oil and Cotton Company plant, this is what happened. I was engaged in making my usual rounds at the mill yesterday morning about two o'clock when I observed a faint but luminous object in the northeast sky. I first thought it to be a meteor of gigantic proportions and its speed appeared equal to such as planetary tramp. As it came nearer, this idea was quickly dispelled. And sorry, this is this really dates the article. I ran to the cabin of a colored man by the name of Jin Smith and together we viewed the aerial monsters that approached nearer. From what appeared to be at first a luminous cloud, there were now clearly outlined a monster airship. Myself and Smith, who he describes with a different word, were held spellbound by the light. The ship had sails or wings outstretched on both ends. There were large rotating fans projecting from the sails at an angle of about 45 degrees. The one in the front being elevated, while the one at the rear was depressed, somewhat resembling the tail of a bird. We could only gain a faint idea of its accurate size, but think it must have been 200 feet long. The sails or wings constituted nine-tenths of the whole. The cigar-shaped cabin was apparently suspended in the midst of the sails, and it was evident that the fans were propelled by some power or force located in the cabin. The noise of the propelling machinery was plainly heard as the ship sailed swiftly over us. My dog was with me when the airship was first discovered, and he immediately set up an unearthly moaning which he continued until the curious visitors were completely lost to view. Dog was moaning? Yeah. Okay. Smith was visibly affected and being naturally superstitious, lost no time in falling to his knees and offering up a prayer for the safety of himself and the family. Smith even now claims the airship was none other than the return of Noah's Ark with wing-like attachments on its way towards the Mississippi bottoms. Its mission being to save the colored folks from the perils of the overflows in that section. That really took a turn. Yeah. The explanation. (laughs) 
And then, while this is all going on, it's kind of in between those two sightings. April 16th, 1897, a story published by the Table Rock Argus claimed that a group of anonymous but reliable witnesses had seen an airship sailing overhead. The craft had many passengers, and the witnesses claimed that among these passengers was a woman tied to a chair, a woman attending her, and a man with a pistol guarding the parent prisoner. Before the witnesses thought to contact authorities, the airship was already gone. And then, this gets even more bizarre. On April 19th, 1897, again in the Dallas Morning News, they had like just a run of each day they had a new sighting that they go through. This one's called oh a God. judge season. Judge Love said the following. <gasps> a judge. It was capable of flying 250 miles an hour, and he met five peculiar dressed men in it. They actually were out. This is what they told him about the people that have been flying the airships around. We live in the regions of the North Pole. Contrary to the general belief, there's a large body of land beyond the polar seas containing about 200 square miles of territory. The first time this land was visited by humans, so far as we know, was when the 10 tribes of Israel found their way there after the captivity and dispersion of the Jews. According to tradition, they were tempted to cross Bering Strait and were carried by a floating iceberg and landed on the shores of the North Pole land. The climate there, while at times cold, was prevented from being uninhabitable by the influence of the Gulf Stream, which after flowing for hundreds of miles, many fathoms under the surface of the sea in that region came to the surface and flows entirely around the continent of the North Pole land. You wonder how I speak English? Well, the polar expedition of Sir Hugh Willoughby in 1553 who with his crew were supposed to have been lost, as a matter of fact, succeeded in reaching the North Pole land. The ship had been so wrecked and broken up by voyage that Sir Willoughby and his crew were unwilling to risk a return trip. Therefore, they remained at the North Pole land, and in the early part of 1846, Sir John Franklin's crew uh, reached North Pole land. Sir John having died near what is now called Lady Franklin Bay, Sir John's crew remained as to return was impossible, and the ship being crushed between two icebergs 100 miles from the North Pole land, to which they went into boats. In addition to the foregoing, various parties in the United States and Europe, from time to time reach this land in a helpless condition. Well, we have a splendid country now. You know how buildings are heated by steam? Well, we have pipes through which steam is conveyed all over the inhabitable parts of our country, and the soil is kept at such a temperature that we can produce all the fruits of the temperate zone and some of the fruits of the tropics. The country is lighted by electricity during the six months of night. We have no timber and no coal. Water, as you know, is composed of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. The oxygen burns very rapidly, giving out great heat. Now, by means of a chemical process, we take an iceberg, separate the hydrogen from the oxygen, and use the latter for fuel and lights. For lack of timber, we cannot build ships to, or trains. Therefore, we were led to the invention of the airship. And that's the end of that one. Okay. <laughs> and then an account from Aurora, Texas, related in the Dallas Morning News on April 19th, about six o'clock this morning, the early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of an airship that had been sailing through the country. It was traveling due north and much nearer the earth than ever before. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order for it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour, gradually settling down to earth. Sailed directly over the public square and when it reached the north part of town, collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill and 
and went to pieces with a terrific explosion scattering debris over the several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill and water tank and destroying the judge's flower garden. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one aboard, and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. Junior T.J. Weems, the United States Signal Service officer at this place and an authority on astronomy, gives it as his opinion that he was a native of the planet Mars. I have no idea how an astronomer, like the best astronomer in town, would be able to judge that, but he did. I love these old sightings when they're like, yeah, he's definitely a Martian or a Venusian. Papers found on his person, evidently the records of his travels are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. The ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or mode of power. And it was built of an unknown metal resembling somewhat a mixture of aluminum and silver and it must have weighed several tons. The town is full of people today who are viewing the wreck and gathering specimens of the strange metal from the debris. The pilot's funeral will take place at noon tomorrow. I'm going to end that there. A lot of speculation on this one. It was the town trying to get over its... It had a bit of a plague issue and it didn't want the bad connotation that wanted some tourist money so it kind of a lot of people believe they made this one up but that's that's still that story okay then there's an account by alexander hamilton not the alexander hamilton from american history another one who lives in leroy kansas okay Uh, the guy who hamilton is based on the play different guy okay this one lives in leroy kansas so apparently on april 18th 1897 this occurred and it's published in yates center farmers advocate of april 23 hamilton his son and attendant witnessed an airship hovering over his cattle pen and upon closer examination the witness realized that a red cable from the airship had lassoed a heifer but had also become entangled in the pen's fence after trying unsuccessfully to free the heifer hamilton cut loose a portion of the fence then stood in amazement to see the ship cow and all rise slowly and sail off some also call this like the first story of cattle mutilation they just left with the cow oh sorry later on apparently it's found okay i both like and don't like the story so that's what he says when people have looked into this i kid you not alexander hamilton is a member of the local liars club (laughs) yeah I wonder why they don't have those anymore. I know. (laughs) Apparently we got TVs and just said, yeah, maybe we don't need Liars Clubs anymore. (laughs) I just don't have the spare time for it anymore. Wow. Okay. Okay. And this one I couldn't put particularly down, but it's somewhere in April 1897. John Halley and Adolph Wenk of Springfield, Illinois, reported a flying craft of a similar type whose pilot told them that it was a new invention flown at night to attract less attention. The pilot stated he had left Quincy 100 miles to the west only 30 minutes earlier, an impossibility for any aerial object of the time. Similar objects were reported in Indiana where a crew were making on-the-spot repairs and the pilot was tracked down by the press in martinville where he had made the statement that he had an airship in brown county undergoing repairs and three machines flying in central states in the u.s and also in april of 1897 for more than 30 minutes a huge airship was witnessed by jurors judges and lawyers who had gathered outside of the courthouse in harrison nebraska and it had a bright white light and colored lights around it it was oval shaped with a box-like structure hanging from it and a propeller at the stern and this one that should came earlier on april 11th 
1897 at around 8 p.m. in Milwaukee. Witnesses all over Milwaukee saw something strange in the sky. A mysterious object passed over the city that night. They called it an airship because the term flying saucer and UFO wouldn't be coined for another 50 years. Hmm. One downtown police officer reported seeing the airship while standing on Broadway. He described the airship as looking like four bright stars put together. It flashed the colors of white, red, and green. Although a local astronomer argued the airship may have only been the stars, this policeman stood by his story. He claimed that the craft dipped, bobbed wildly several times, and before it sped off towards the northwest and disappeared from view, unusual behavior for a star. Many other witnesses concurred that its rate of speed was unmistakable from the movement of ordinary stars. And a central police lieutenant, however, claimed the airship was the product of hoaxers flying a kite from the North Point Lighthouse grounds. And he contended the airships were nothing more than a kite with a light attached. Strung out on an incredible two mile of string, even a Milwaukee Sentinel reporter questioned this explanation. The airship was seen all over the city. How could it have been a night flying kite, even one controlled by an impossibly long tether? When reliable independent witnesses spotted the airship over Sheboygan, later that same night, the kite explanation became even less plausible. And the airship was the talk of the town in the morning. The question, have you seen the airship, replaced customary greetings. And an article in Arkansas Gazette printed on April 20th, 1897 reported that Captain Jim Hooten had witnessed the appearance of one such airship. Hooten, a conductor of the Iron Mountain Railroad, was visiting Texarkana to pick up a locomotive to bring back to Little Rock. He decided to go hunting while he waited. As he made his way through the underbrush, he heard the familiar sound of a locomotive air pump and moved towards the sound. As he looked up, he saw an airship land in a field a few acres from where he stood. Hooten and the ship's pilot then had a conversation about the airship's engine before it took off. Hooten was able to make an extremely detailed sketch of the airship when he was interviewed by the Arkansas Gazette two days later. On April 23rd, 1897, posted in the Harrisburg, Arkansas's Modern News, one witness from Arkansas, allegedly a former state senator, was supposedly told by an airship pilot that the craft was bound for Cuba and he was going to use its Hotchkiss gun to kill Spaniards. He then offered this senator a ride, but the senator refused. (laughs) As he probably should. (laughs) On May 17th, 1897, Constable Sumter and Deputy Sheriff John McElmore spotted a bright light in the sky and quickly disappeared while out riding outside the city limits one rainy evening day in Hot Springs, Arkansas. As they kept riding, they saw the light again closer to the ground. They rode as fast as they could until the horses could go no further, then dismounted and drew their weapons. According to the Hot Springs Sentinel, They described seeing a 60-foot-long cigar-shaped vessel with several men, shining lights, walking around the ship. Sumter and Macklemore questioned the captain, who told them he could take them to where it was not raining. Sumter and Macklemore said they preferred to get wet, and the two lawmen let the airship go on its way after finding out that they were heading to Nashville, Tennessee. And then, while this is all going on, the airship sightings catch the attention of the Arkansas General Assembly, the local government, and they have a debate on whether or not the Arkansas Rail Commission would be getting freight charges from these airships flying overhead. These reported airships seem to be moving around the state without paying taxes, and the Arkansas State Senate passed a resolution declaring that the airships should be paying taxes on the freight they carry. (laughs) And then... Around the middle of May, these sightings just stop. On the coastal northeast, this is the last sighting that happens. It's in Yonkers, New York, 1897. Okay. And the date's different on this. So it, I don't really know which one's the last one. The articles I was reading, I guess, just wanted to put it flying off to see is its last one. 
but it also says this is April 30th, so might not be the last one. The great airship was seen over Yonkers, New York, towards the sea. Curiously, when the 1896-97 complex stopped for all practical purposes, it does just stop. Um, there is another airship flap that happens in 1909. It yeah. doesn't reference the 1897 one. It, it is fully independent. Super weird. And virtually no new sightings emerge from the areas over which it had soared. It just ends. In total, there were sightings over 20 different states with at least 150 different independent sightings which took place in this time. Can I ask some questions? Yes, that's the end of my story. Were there ever any daytime sightings? For the most part, they were all nighttime. I can't confirm all of them, though, because some of the articles just say, like, what happened. They don't say it Mm -hmm. was night. Like, the guy who was hunting and came across that ship in the forest, I assume that would be daytime, because I don't see people hunting in the middle of the night for deer. But it didn't say whether or not. True. Now, some of the sightings are, like, super cool sightings. Other ones, like... And people saying that this is, like, aircraft they were working on. Like, why? You wouldn't be just exclusively testing aircrafts at night. Well, you might be, because there would be a bit of, like, inventors worrying that people are stealing their invention or seeing their invention and then being the first to invent an aircraft. So that does seem somewhat plausible. It could seem plausible, but then you think about it, and if it's, like, the first time... People are out trying to invent aircraft, like something you're flying in. Is that the ideal testing situation to be going up at night? No, but we don't do everything for ideal purposes. That's true. That's true. Some things are just for... There's a lot of idiots out there. Yeah. Plus, they probably got day jobs too, so they got to work on their airships at night. So that got me to thinking, like, what's going on at the... If a lot of it is fueled by people like some of them are cool some of them are obviously might be something else other than this but i was like what might be fueling it and i was like when did world the worlds happen no that one the radio one didn't come out till night 1937 so that's a ways off no but the but book i is, believe would have come out around that time it did now it didn't actually get printed until 1898 so this is still after this it was being written actually during this time yeah, and in fact, you got to wonder if that had a little bit of inspiration drawn from this. That's what I was thinking as well after I realized it wouldn't have came out to create people being like, oh, what's that light in the sky now? Seems more like it might have been some inspiration. Yeah, but also um, like um, airships were just kind of part of the popular culture at the time with the science fiction. Okay. Which might also just be drawing what people are seeing. If they're seeing something in the sky, they don't know. They're just identifying it as something that they might be able yeah. to. Anything, any form of reference that yeah, you have exactly. is going to be thrown out there. Yeah. And I always love, like I said, when you're talking about it, at this time, everyone's reference is Mars or Venus or something like that. And I always enjoy that. Except for the Israelites that were at the North Pole. And right. the ones that get horrible. And that's it. And it does seem like someone would blame it on them eventually. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was great i didn't know that history actually yeah and john keel actually writes quite extensively in one of his books i think it's operation trojan horse is the name of the book as well as there was a book that i would love to read but i was just taking little chunks of it as i went and it is called the ufo controversy in america by david michael jacobs written in 1975 that extensively talks about these sightings as well 
So if you're looking for further reading, this is a very short sample of everything that happened during this time. Go check out one of those books because it does bring further information. Well, and this is like the first airflap you said that, right? Yeah, like there are UFO sightings before, but like John Keel's the one who coins the term UFO flap, and he specifically calls this the first UFO flap. Yeah, that would make sense. Okay. And if you want to look it up, there's a Wikipedia article on mysterious airships that have a lot of drawings of them from the day. And uh, like, you just gotta love some of the old timey airship, almost steampunk qualities to them. On it. UFO. And also if you probably just Google them. This is definitely, what do I Google? <laughs> just Google 1897 airship and look at images. And there's lots of them. There we go. I really like the one and it's literally just oh. a, um, like a ship in the water with like fans above it. And a fan in front. That oh, yeah, there it is. The next one is like a ship with like an air, hot air balloon attached to it. Yeah. Oh, these are good. And we'll probably post a few on socials as you this know, is going on. It really speaks to the time we're living in because UFOs look so different now. They've come so far. Yeah, I, I have a hard time believing these could go to Mars and back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, these are good. These are nice yeah. photos. But yeah, I'm sure at a future date we'll take up the 1909 airship flap. But for now, I have been Taylor here with Chelsea. We are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh